Welcome back to Divorced and Done. I'm Rob Woodward, joined by Darren Schmidt. We're divorce lawyers, bringing you the six steps to navigate your divorce quickly and efficiently without bankrupting yourself emotionally or financially. Everything we talk about in this podcast is legal information, but it is not legal opinion or legal advice of any kind. Darren Schmidt, it's 2022. Happy New Year. How are you doing? Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to anyone taking their time to listen to this. Uh, I'm good. How was your holiday? Holiday time was great. Was wonderful, of course, to be away from the office, but more just to see family and have that delightful, calm pause that we as society, thankfully, all still sort of take as a collective at the end of the year. How about you? It was good. It was uh, extraordinarily cold in my neck of the woods, so that prevented us from doing some outdoor activities, but it was good just to take a pause and have a sit, have a drink. Well, that's, that's right, because you told me your furnace went out more than once, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was actually something relatively silly. So we have a high-efficient furnace, high-efficiency furnace, whatever you want to call it, um, and it has the air intake and the exhaust pipes in and out of the house. So it sucks the air into the house. And as it was sucking the air into the house, it wasn't sealed around our foundation adequately. So it was there was a lot of condensation building in the pipe. So the, the furnace just couldn't get enough air and it would just shut itself down. So there's nothing mechanically wrong. It was just that the, the PVC pipe extending out of our house wasn't secured correctly or sealed correctly. So it was bringing in liquid instead of air? It was almost like if you have a, a window with a poor draft in it or, or a drafty window, you know, it, it'll gotcha. form ice on it. Like right. there's hot air meeting cold air. That's sort of what was going on. And so we just had to go out and kind of kick the pipe every, you know, six hours. So that was a pain in the butt. We had the furnace guy out. He was super awesome. And uh, we had fun with him for half a day uh, diagnosing this thing. And it just boiled down to, hey, your pipe's frozen. So that was kind of funny, but. Alas, that's like But the problem is solved and your house is warm and things aren't exploding. Like frozen Correct. pipes or any of those things. Good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> Thanks. Speaking of problems solved, we have some folks with some problems that have sent us some questions. <clears throat> and we're going to get to them today, as many as we can. Uh, you can send your questions to us, to our Gmail, lawyers talking about divorce. That's plural, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. And uh, hopefully we'll get to them in a, at a future episode. We have a lot. We still have a lot sitting in the hopper or the queue. So we'll try and get to yours as soon as we can. Um, if you're sending us a question, you know, be mindful. Uh, tr try and condense it as much as you can. We love getting as much details as possible. But um, we have had some extended questions, some long questions. And those are great. Um, but, you know, it's, sometimes it's tough for us to parse them down. But really, send us anything and we'll, we'll address it in the future. Check out our website, divorcedanddone.com. Let's get to question one. Listener says, hello, I have a son who just turned 11. He lives with his mother in Edmonton, an Alberta listener. We also have a six-year-old daughter who is shared between her mother and I, and I live in the Lloydminster area. How far are those two cities apart, Rob? Do you know, just off the top of your head? I don't have a map I'm in front of I'm going to guess that's probably about three or four hours. Because Lloydminster is the city that borders Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Alberta, it's in Saskatchewan. It's on the eastern edge of the province and far north. Right. Not okay. quite as far north as McMurray, but it's still north. All right. So listeners in Lloydminster, mom's in Edmonton. Mom has the 11-year-old boy and dad has the six-year-old daughter, but six-year-old daughter shares time between him and mom. 
In June 2019, my ex accused my son of sexually abusing his sister, and that was the last time the children actually saw each other or heard each other's voices. Child Protective Services, uh, Child and Family Services, I believe it's called in Alberta, has been involved and gave me guidelines to follow, and my son had multiple meetings with a psychologist, but there was really no risk found. Things have sort of been closed there. Uh, however, he says, the listener says, we've been in court for over a year. I have a legal aid lawyer who I am not satisfied with. My ex has a lawyer and our daughter also has a lawyer now appointed for her. We have further hearings coming up now that our daughter has a lawyer. I've spent the last year and a half as a wreck and my daughter has missed her brother so much and it is affecting her. I am concerned the whole system is out to get me as well as all men in the family courts generally. What are your thoughts? It's quite a deep question. Lots going on. Rob, what what are your thoughts? I think this listener is unfortunately in a challenging space, number one, given the nature of the allegations and the process. But what we can say that's positive is likely the process is working. As he said, they've been in court for well over a year which means judges are aware of what's going on, child and family services is involved. Given the nature of the allegations from 2019, there likely would have been some investigation, uh, includes the son meeting with a psychologist. What the daughter would have met with, we don't know, or the parents. Um, But both parties have lawyers, including the daughter where the, the allegation was alleged to have occurred. So hopefully with both mom and dad having their voices in the system and the daughter now having her own lawyer, that this can likely, if it's really stuck, be set to a hearing so things can be determined quickly. Uh, As the listener says, son met with a psychologist uh, and was determined there's no risk there. Okay. There will likely be a lot of weight put probably on what's heard from the daughter Uh, and from both mom and dad's counsel. And all of that would need to be presented at a hearing. Given the the nature of the allegations, uh, experts would need to be engaged either through child and family services or independent experts to really opine on what's happened here or not saying risk or no risk. Then a judge is in a better position to make a determination on what sort of parenting for both children can look like going forward and what sort of interaction both of those children can have with each other. So I'm sympathetic to the listener. Obviously, going through court and going through trial is not an easy thing, and particularly in our show, in divorce matters generally, we always encourage resolution, but with these sorts of allegations and sexual allegations with children, that necessarily engages more experts and it's special evidence that is treated differently than when parties just have disputes generally. So this will likely have to go fully through the court depending on the nature of that expert evidence and hopefully the listeners able to get resolution sometime before the end of this year since those allegations first flared up in 2019. I think you're right. Absolutely. I think the uh, um Look, no court is going to want to keep these siblings apart if they can do otherwise. It's presumed, uh, it should be presumed that they they should have some sort of relationship. Ideally, and normally we see siblings um, not split up between two homes. 
and certainly not kept apart. But the nature of the allegations stemming from June 2019 uh, has obviously thrown a wrench into that presumption. The child services investigation, I'd be curious to see what that outcome was. And that may be what carries the day here. There has been other experts. So the listener has said, of course, this psychologist has been involved. He says that no risk was found as a result of the child services and psychologist reports. So that would, if, if that is true, and we have no reason to, to think otherwise, then, you know, it would seem to me that the court would want to move towards integrating the siblings back into some sort of relationship with each other that would serve both of their best interests. And that, as you say, Rob, an expert would be able to provide uh, what that integration might look like. Because if there truly is no risk, uh, nothing came of it, then, you know, June 2019, June that's 2020. That's two and a half years yeah, ago. I was just running the years in my, and I'm like, that's a long time. Um, you know, that should move rather quickly if there actually is no risk. So I think the things to think about here is, has there actually been a determination from a third party like Children's Services or a psychologist expert that's been appointed by the court that says there is no risk? And if that's the case, then I'd be looking at wanting to integrate uh, the siblings to have some sort of relationship with each other sooner rather than later. Um, and perhaps his lawyer should be making that application. Yeah. I, that, that, that's, if nothing's moving. Right. And the fact that the daughter now has a lawyer involved, I mean, that that can be helpful as well. She has a voice. I don't know whether the son should also have a lawyer. But the goal here is, and I think it should be both parents' goal, is that we want these kids to have a relationship with each other, presuming it's safe and presuming nothing serious occurred back in June 2019. Or if something did occur, how can we, um, how can we fix that to put it sort of in a, uh, a blunt way. Um, but th that that's going to depend on the experts. But yeah, I agree, Rob. Maybe that, that lawyer should be looking at bringing an application for some integration of the two children. Thank you for the question. That was very, uh, very deep. So we wish you well. Let's that was a question. heavy question for number yeah. one in 2022. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, we, we, do, we do very much wish you well. And thank you for the question. Question two, I am a self- I am self-employed and I run a business driving a truck. I make about $120,000 a year. I've checked the Canadian Child Support Guidelines website for my province, and it said I should pay base child support of about $1,000 a month. So I think he's talking about the uh, federal child support lookup, if I'm saying that right. Um, but since I run my own business, if you take away about 25 to 30% of all of my earnings for expenses to run my business, like uh, gas, maintenance for the vehicle, insurance, loans, uh, medical and benefits, uh, he also adds tax. So let's put that aside because I think that's a separate piece to this because we'll get into that. But he says, if you take away 25 to 30% for expenses to run my business, uh, and he lumps in tax. My income is a lot less than $120,000. How can I afford to pay child support on a higher income than I actually make? I love my son and I want to pay for him, but I just want to know how I can afford this. So uh, Rob, I think what this listener is saying is I, I'm self-employed. I get the sense he's probably a sole proprietor. He's probably completing an income tax return. Um, he's claiming gross income on self-employment income on that. But it's uncertain whether he's claiming all of these 
expenses like gas maintenance for the vehicle, insurance, loans, and medical, which again, we're not tax experts, but that would properly be deducted from his income. Um, how, how should he go about thinking about child support in this case? What do you think? So the starting point for assessing someone's income for child support is looking to their tax return, their personal tax return. And what is their line 150 income? In determining that, and as you said, Darren, we're not tax experts, but hopefully because this person's running their own business, they've talked to an accountant or have the assistance of an accountant in preparing their tax returns. Because it may be that this person is a sole proprietor, which means that their business is not legally registered, but you can still have valid deductions that come off of your taxes. Or this person has a registered company and receives income through the company in a variety of ways, but that means there would be a corporate tax return and a personal tax return. In that second instance where a person has a company, the personal income of this individual, even though it's just his company, should be a lot less than that 120000 a year because all those other pieces that he's deducting, gas, maintenance for the vehicle, insurance, loans, those would properly be corporate expenses borne by the company. Then whatever his personal income is should dictate what uh, his child support is payable based on the guidelines, which would mean his income wouldn't be the gross of the company, not 120 a year, but something probably considerably less. Similarly, if the person is a sole proprietor running uh, their deductions and everything else through just one tax return without a company, maybe a little bit more challenging um, for an opposing party or other lawyers looking at his income to say, are those deductions valid or not? But similarly, there's a process in the child support guidelines when we're looking at that income to evaluate whether those deductions are valid or not. So to summarize very briefly, I think it's safe to say with this company grossing 120 a year, this listener will not be paying child support at 120 a year. Some of those deductions will be valid. Some may not be. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, uh, deductions that you can take validly for CRA purposes, you may or may not be able to take those deductions for child support purposes. Um, but working with an accountant, particularly with your own company, is the best way to do this. And that accountant can probably even give you a good estimate of what your guideline income is for you to better assess what your child support can be. And working with your ex, then you'll be able to come up with a better number that more accurately reflects your income after all those deductions are validly considered. So I'm going to assume this guy's a sole proprietor. And uh, I'm going to assume your income tax return should reflect the the expenses deducted for gas maintenance, vehicle insurance, and medical benefits plan that maybe you're paying for, those should all be deducted. And after deductions, your line 150 income on your income tax return should reflect your actual line 150 total income because you can deduct those things. I'm not a tax expert, but I know you can. Um, but I wanted to talk about the tax because you said if you take away about 25 to 30% for, and we listed all the expenses, and tax, Right. There's one very important thing I'd like you to take away from this. It's that we do not calculate child support based on net income after tax. Right, The guidelines are based on gross income. And I've had a lot of feedback on this over the last year through this podcast, through social media from payors saying it's unfair 
that child support should be calculated based on gross income, pre-tax income. The calculations themselves are based on an adult equivalent unit. You can look up how the calculations actually work under the guidelines. It's quite technical. I will not get into any of it now. Um, But the calculations are based on gross income because they already account for income tax that's paid at that amount. So uh, fear not that it's based on your gross taxes. Um, but, or your gross income, excuse me. So, so don't worry about the tax, right? You, you can't deduct the tax from your income in this instance for child support purposes. You can probably deduct the other things in consultation with an accountant, but the tax, no, we don't calculate income, net income for child support purposes in Canada or spousal support for that matter. So hopefully that helps. Question three. Uh, the listener says, my children are 12 and 13. Their whole lives, I have monitored, monitored their electronics to watch for inappropriate activity. My husband never really minded what they did on their phone or computer. Now that we are separated, he has made the kids change their lock codes on their electronics, have told them I'm not allowed on or near their phones, and my ex has accused me of forcing the children to unlock their phones so I can look at them. And the listener says, well, I've never done this. Even though I do not check the children's phones, my ex is saying it's an invasion of their privacy if I do. But all of my fellow friend parents with kids of the same age do it. I'm wondering, is there any sort of law here that guides us on what we should be doing on separated parents who are preventing the other from checking their children's phones? My ex also says since he pays for the phones, I have no right to check them. And some clarity would be helpful. Thanks. That's a pretty interesting question. Rob, what do you think? It's a great question because I'd never really thought about this before. You and I, we read these questions before we sort of address them, and I thought about it a little bit. And phones are a tricky issue because we know that children can access the world, and as much as there's wonderful things we can find online, there's lots of terrible things we can find online, and bad things can happen. My view on cell phones are no different than computers or television. And what happens in your house is your responsibility as a parent. It's part of those rights and responsibilities of guardianship or decision-making. So for this listener in this situation, dad's paying for the phones. They've changed the lock codes. That's fine. My view is those phones are the responsibility then of dad's house. And even if the phones come with the children to mom's house, those phones maybe go in a drawer when they're at mom's house. There's not necessarily a need for the children to be on those phones at her house. This may mean mom buys them separate phones or they have iPads or other things at her house to do essentials like homework or talking to friends or texting or whatever. There's no law, I don't believe, that would say children need one phone all the time with them and they must be tied to that phone and one parent gets to see it and the other does not. Both of you are responsible for what goes on in your house. I think for this listener, I wouldn't get into too much of a fuss about the phone. The only thing that I can sort of foresee here is dad may say, hey, I try and contact the kids on the phones I bought for them and I paid for, and you're not letting them access those phones on your parenting time. 
that's fine. They can phone on another phone. They can phone on the home phone. Or dad can access them potentially through social media, Facebook Messenger, whatever that they might have on separate devices that are at your house where mom is responsible for what the children do on those devices at her house. So it's an unfortunate fight in terms of privacy law. I wouldn't get into it. My view on privacy and children is you're their parent. And until they're 18, you are responsible for what they do and what they look at or not look at. And the rules in your house and the rules in dad's house might be different, but let's be the best parents we can be in our own houses, particularly for our children and particularly what they're doing online. Yeah, it's a guardianship issue here. You're both joint guardians of the kids and you have joint decision-making responsibility under either the Divorce Act, if you're married or now divorced, or your local family law legislation in whatever province that you live in. And you have uh, the right and obligation to look after your kids' best needs. And it's awfully tough to do that from your perspective as a listener to say, well, I can't really do that if the other parent is preventing me from uh, looking after my kids, which includes looking at their phones. So I think if this is a big enough concern for you, take it to your lawyer and see if this matter needs to go back in front of the court for a determination about how you will co-parent the children respecting use of cell phones and both parents having access to those phones. You've said, I want to make sure that they're looking at the right things on the internet. That's a totally valid concern. The internet can be a dark and scary place. We've seen lots and lots of news articles over the last 20 years of kids accessing dark places on the internet and bad things happening. And your concerns about, I want to make sure that they're not doing that, that's totally valid. And I can't see a judge saying, you don't get to look at the phones that your children have as purchased by the other parent because you're a joint guardian. Maybe I could be wrong, but I just, I have a hard time seeing that. And if your concerns are, I want to know what they're looking at, I want to have access to those records, or either I want to look at the phone or I want to see some records of what they're doing on the internet, court's going to probably grant that. Um, Ideally, in most cases, parents are working collaboratively on these things. As you say, Rob, you know, parents share the cost of the cell phone plans and no one's locking the cell phones from the other parent as they're exchanged. And it's sort of just transparent and everyone's working on the, the same premise. Doesn't sound like that's what's happening in your case. I think it is inappropriate for the other parent to lock you out of the children's cell phones. Um, and I think you should have access to that. I don't think that's a privacy law issue. I think that just stems from your right as a guardian of the children. Absolutely. I completely agree. The only thing I would say in terms of thinking about inappropriate activity, unless there's a strong history of it, or you are sincerely concerned about your children, I think you're right, Darren. If this is a major concern for the listener and she is concerned that her children are doing things perhaps they shouldn't be doing or in challenging circumstances, bring it forward. But if this is perhaps something lesser and it's dad just texting with the kids or don't tell mom this or we're doing this, I hate when you talk to mom, it's as simple as fine. Those phones are the phones you use at dad's house. We have different devices and different things you do here and we're just avoiding that. And great not distinction. That issue th- up. Yeah, great distinction. If you, I guess, I was coming at it from the lens of inappropriate. Are you, activity. Are you concerned yeah. about what the kids are looking at? Are they going onto weird forums? Or are they, are they sure. looking at bad stuff? And your 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 ex is trying to conceal that. I I think that's inappropriate. But yes. um, 
All right. Hopefully that helps. There is the, the, the answer is there's no law. It's just you're both guardians. And if you don't like the answer, you can go back to court as a guardian and say, I'd like some guidance or direction from the court about how to exercise my guardianship rights. Let's go to our last question for this episode, I think. Uh, the listener says, I love your TikTok. Well, we love that you're watching our TikTok. That's very cool. What are the legalities for moving and mobility if you're not legally married? I'm primary caregiver of our five-year-old daughter. Uh, the father works away out of province most times. He works six to eight weeks and returns for about five. The shift worker of some sort. I want to relocate to Ontario with our daughter. I'm fairly certain he won't agree and has alluded to saying that I kidnapped her if I, I, I kidnapped her if I left. Uh, we had a toxic relationship and I believe my ex is abusing alcohol and drugs including in front of our child, and it is not really safe in that household. What's the best possible for scenario to move? My adult teenage children, whom I have joint custody with, my other ex currently reside in Ontario. Can my current, can the, can the father of the child, uh, of our younger five-year-old child here, make me stay here? I fear for my child's safety from her biological father. So, um, I think this is the issue. Mom lives somewhere we're not certain where, wants to move to Ontario. She has some other biological children residing in Ontario. The father of the five-year-old works out of town six to eight weeks and comes back for about five. He will likely be opposed to mom wanting to move to Ontario. And the listener says she's also concerned about dad when he is home for his five weeks that he's abusing drugs and alcohol. And she wants to know what kind of steps she can take to possibly move to Ontario with the five-year-old. Rob, what do you think? So I'm hearing two pieces to this question that are perhaps a little bit concerning. I fear that the listener is seeking to move to just solve two problems at once. Sounds like she's concerned about her ex or perhaps soon to be X, where it's not exactly clear from the question, how that person is as a parent in the province where she lives right now. But perhaps seeing a mobility piece as the answer to her problem, saying, well, if I just move, he'll have less parenting time or no parenting time, and that's great. Then I'm in Ontario with my other X and my other children. Great. So those are two separate issues. There's a mobility issue and there's a parenting issue. And in my view, the parenting issue necessarily trumps the mobility issue. I think this listener needs to decide what's most important. But if this child, when is with her, the five-year-old, when is with her ex here or whatever province that she's in, is sincerely in an unsafe place where there's alcohol and drugs, that needs to be addressed first. And in my view, if this person were to go to a court and say, hey, I want to move uh, I have some children elsewhere that I'd like to see. Oh, yeah, he's also a really bad guy. He's using drugs and alcohol. In my view, the mobility piece would potentially make the possible danger that may or may not exist look less pertinent if this were to go to court. A court's going to look at this and say, okay, uh, you've been in this situation for so long. How long has that alcohol and drug abuse been going on? Has it really been going on at all? They'll want to see some evidence there on that. 
Or is this person just raising drug and alcohol issues now, depending on how long they've been going on for to say, this is now intolerable, I want to move. So I really see this as a two-step sort of piece. Does she sincerely want to relocate for the sake of relocating? If so, there's some law around that, and it really has to be in best interest of the children to relocate. Or is she just looking to relocate to get out of a bad situation? And my view would be you need to deal with the bad situation first, which may mean just being separate and apart in this jurisdiction and coming to some new parenting structure before seeking to relocate instead of doing both of those pieces at once. That's my concern. I like that. I think that's exactly right from the little we know from the question. Um, maybe getting a parenting order in place first before the mobility piece because it's entirely unclear why you why you want to move, right? Do you have another job in Ontario lined up? Are you going to go to school there? Um, or, or are you just moving in the hopes that maybe one of those things would happen? You'd get a job or go to school. We're not even certain where you're moving from. So we're not even certain how far the, the, the distance would be uh, that you're moving to from where you are now. Um, so getting getting a parenting order or arrangement by agreement in place with your ex or soon to be ex when he's home for his five weeks would be good. And if that's from your position, maybe supervised parenting time because of the risk that you think he poses, maybe that's your position, right? Maybe he, he does have significant addictions problems and you want to protect your child. Great. I think get some sort of parenting plan in place and then solidify your desire to move. Why do you want to move? Do you have a job lined up? Do you have somewhere to live? What will the future look like for you? What will the future look like for your five-year-old? Where will your five-year-old go to school starting next school year? You should have all those things sort of lined up and proposed. And then if you are going to move and you have that initial parenting order in place, be it supervised parenting time or something else, then you give your ex notice. Your provincial family law legislation will probably provide. That notice needs to be somewhere in the 30 to 90 day range, depending on what province you're in. Um, and then you give them the written notice about where you want to move to, why you're moving, and then they can respond. And then that matter will go to court on the mobility piece. But I totally agree with you, Rob, two, two pieces. First, get the parenting arrangement in place or in order. Second, deal with your mobility and firm up why you want to move and where you're moving to. So thank you for your question. Great. That was good. Great questions. And Darren Schmidt, Great first episode of 2022, because you and I, we've talked about this so many times, we are so excited, but more humbled by all the great questions that we got last year and we're continuing to receive. Yeah, we're shaking off the rust here early in 2022, but uh, we did our best. If you got questions, send them to us, lawyers talking about divorce at gmail.com. Darren Schmidt, thanks for joining me. I'm Rob Woodward. This has been Divorced and Done. We look forward to being with you again. And Happy New Year.